Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to music critiquing to self-help to song lyrics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And this week, I welcome in Will Leach, the Deadspin founder, an MLB national correspondent, a New York Magazine contributing editor, a Sports Illustrated TV host, an author, a hip-hop mogul, an underwear model, my second uncle on my mother's side. He's a veteran writer who does absolutely everything. And in a wide-ranging Q&A, today we'll be discussing Eddie Van Halen's golf game, Sean Hannity's, hey, I'm on TV, ego, how to survive in an ever-changing industry, and why Deadspin still rolls along. Will's one of the absolute greats in the business, and he's right now on Two Writers, Sling and Yang. Okay, Will, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I was reading a lot of your stuff earlier today, and I was trying to figure out what it is about your writing that I really, really, really like. And I kind of nailed it to one thing, which is you wrote a piece called Losing Ain't What It Used To Be, and it ran in, uh, in New York Magazine. And you wrote, there isn't an athlete on the planet who doesn't try to cheat the inevitable and eventually collapse, whether it's Michael Jordan with the Wizards, Muhammad Ali against Trevor Burbick, or LeBron James, well, now. And I was thinking, in this era of everyone getting younger writers who will do it for half the price, very few people are making a Trevor Burbick. <laughs> I actually mean that, though. As silly as that, I know that sounds super weird. You fill this thing, this piece, uh, Scott Norwood, Bill Buckner, Leon Durham, Fred Merkel. Is that corny? Does that make any sense to you? Or you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? No, I, I get it. I mean, I, I, it sounds a little like I'm old, but uh, that's okay. I'm that too. <laughs> uh, uh, if, if for what it's worth, I was five years old when uh, right. Trevor Burbank and Muhammad Ali uh, fought. But uh, yeah, you know, one of the things that's, uh, uh, thank you for the, for, first off for having me. And for, uh, for those kind words, um, for me, you know, I, uh, I, I can't speak to, um, a, a, the vastest amount of sports knowledge. I think that, uh, as I get older, I find myself, I remember when I first started working, uh, when I first got out of college and I was like obsessed with sports, but didn't want to work in sports, I would spend entire weekends. I was not writing about sports professionally, but I would spend entire weekends with like Printouts from my work computer of all the big games that weekend, and I would obsess over. Like I was in like eight fantasy leagues, and as I get older, I, I can't do that as much anymore. But uh, so I sometimes worry that my sports knowledge, like my music knowledge, frankly, is still kind of stuck in the nineties. I saw, I saw, I watched Captain Marvel, and the movie is set in nineteen ninety five, and it's all this nostalgia stuff about nineteen ninety five. But I feel oh like God. it was just nineteen ninety five, and I'm still right. kind of listening to everything I was. In 1995. So, uh, but yeah, you know, for me, one of the things that's ri- nice writing about New York Magazine, they generally, uh, kind of trust me to basically it's not, it's not a sports publication. I love writing sports things for not sports publications because they're just like, yeah, you probably know what you're doing. <laughs> so right. I, I can get away with stuff like that, but I can throw in a Trevor Burbeck uh, reference and no one there is like, please relate this to the young influencers. Uh, they just let me do it. Right. Well, do you think it matters? Like, does it matter if someone's reading your piece? And they have no idea who Trevor Burrick is. Is that a problem? I mean, I, probably. I don't, I have no idea. And I, I frankly, am not, I don't really care. <laughs> like right. That's the analogy I was trying to use. And, uh, if it inspires one person out there to search that sad spectacle 
that was the uh, Muhammad Ali Trevor Burrick fight. Uh, I I felt like I've done my job. Uh, I'm kidding, of course, but like I do think there's something maybe. But you know, I uh, listen. I know this is kind of outdated, uh, particularly in this time of day, but uh, I write for my ideal audience, which is basically me. <laughs> like, I, I've always kind of felt like uh, no one is tougher uh, on my writing than me. Um, no one is. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm writing for stuff that I think it works and I think will make sense. I've been very lucky and been very privileged uh, in my career to be able to have the kind of the freedom to do that and not feel like I'm constantly uh, trying to, uh, so far anyway, I'm, I'm the hamster trying to hit the, hit the button so I can get a pellet, uh, which I feel like is what a lot of writing is, uh, these days. And I get it. I understand the economics of these things. And, and, uh, I, certain, certain times I guess I've had to deal with that. But on the whole, you know, I, I'm doing this for, I'm writing about stuff that I think is interesting and I write and I care about. And I mainly because I can't write about stuff that I don't care about. <laughs> I just, I'm right. really, really bad at it. And, uh, I, every time I write about something I don't care about, I feel like I have to write an essay on a book I haven't read for like class. So uh, I always struggle with that. So for me, I just try to focus on things that uh, I'm fast and I'm interested by. And fortunately I'm interested by like a lot of things. Otherwise I'd, I'd be out about that. I'd be out of topics. I actually love that you said that. I, I have been saying for years that writing for an audience is a horrible idea because who the hell knows? Like, how do you know? <laughs> how do you know what the hundred people out there are going to want? But if you can please yourself, I just think that's your best audience, right? I mean, I don't know if my, if my, I don't know if all my editors and the people that finance, uh, the stuff that I do always would necessarily agree with that. But, uh, for me, I just, I don't, I don't know how to do it otherwise. And, uh, and I don't, I don't mean that as like, I am an artiste and I can yeah. only do it my special way. I mean, I literally can't. <laughs> like, I don't right. know. Like, I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't know how to do it. So, um, for me, you know, and maybe this, maybe that just makes me inherently lazy. I'm not doing enough time to research things that I don't care about, but I have a really hard time faking enthusiasm. Unfortunately, I'm enthusiastic about a lot of things, but if I'm not enthusiastic about something, I just, I can't do it. And, you know, this may come into a larger, this may lead to a larger, uh, kind of discussion of writing in the, in the year 2019 anyway. But I don't know, man. Like, I, I feel like when you're constantly just writing to like get the, to make the machine go give you your, the numbers that you want, or you're writing to, to have people give you the engagement that you're looking for, uh, which is not actually not the same thing as, you know, money <laughs> or not same, the same, right. the same thing as, as actually, uh, engage, like actually like engaging in and connecting with readers. I don't know. I, I, I made a choice, uh, when very, before I was even in, in college that I wanted to write for a living. I did not make a choice to, um, be a banker. Or to give some, or to get something that would give me, uh, uh, more money <laughs> or would right. get, get, or do something that would make me, uh, feel as if I was getting constant, uh, um, uh, love from everybody all the time. I just knew that I wanted to write. And so I've always written for me. And so far, knock on wood, uh, it's, I'm continuing to be able to, to at least get by on it. But I, I, I don't understand. This is why I'm bad at social media. This is something that you're good at that I'm really bad at because I don't. I don't really feel a need for constant feedback because by the time that someone has read something, I have already gone through every possible permutation of what people would like about it or what they don't like about it. And I've questioned myself and then I'm excited about things. Like I don't like once it's out in the world, it's not mine anymore. And I don't really care. I hope people like it and I hope people see it, but I've already moved on to something else. And 
Uh, because of that, that makes me really bad in the world of social media, because social media, it seems to me anyway, a lot of times people are saying things just to get the feedback specifically. And uh, so I... I tend to just make my things and then I move on to the next thing. And I hope people like it. I certainly don't want people not to like it. Uh, but I, by the time I'm getting reaction to what I'm doing, frankly, I've already moved on to something else. So you, you know, just as an example, you, um, you did a piece for Vulture about the best, you ranked the all time best picture winners for the Academy Award. Some guys like, Hey, asshole, how can you have blah, 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 you know, Casablanca number one? Come on, man. Blah, blah. Don't care. Like, don't care. I, I mean, I, I don't care is too strong, which is to say that, like, whether you read it or not, I don't care. Like, I want people to read it, and I hope that they like it. But their actual, like, first off, when it comes to the opinion thing, like, I don't know if I'm right. <laughs> like, I'm just, I, it, it's always weird to me. This is one of the things that I hope powers my writing a little bit, is I, I don't understand, and this is true everywhere I look in every field, everyone I see seem so freaking sure of themselves all the time. And they're everyone and whether it's their in their opinions or whether it's their politics or whether it's their sports fandom, everyone just seems and I know it's partly the medium of, of social media makes people so freaking certain of themselves all of the time. And there's no way that when they're falling asleep at night, they're like, I am still alone in their bed within the darkness, in the silence that they're going, wow, I'm a hundred percent. I'm right about everything that I said today. Like there's no way. And so for me, like I am, I'm just tossing this stuff out there. I, I, I put thought into it. I'm not like, like, I, I don't think I'm like flippant about uh, the, the things that I write about, but I also do not make any sort of claim to have any, or even a, a small fraction of the answers about anything. Uh, I'm, I'm just searching my way through this like everybody else is. And I know that's, I, I feel like that's, I don't know if that helps me or it harms me, but it's weird. If someone reacts to something, if they disagree with it, A, I spent a really long time writing a lot of things that nobody read and nobody cared about and nobody paid me for. The fact that someone is engaging with anything that I've put my, uh, my, my, all my effort into in the first place, I'm, I, it's great. <laughs> like I can't believe right. I, I, I spent a long time without anybody caring, but the actual like, so I don't mean to say that I don't care, like, your reaction is irrelevant to me. Like, I want people to have a reaction. That's great. I'm, I'm glad that they're doing that. But by the time that they're reading it, it's not mine anymore. It doesn't mean that I don't care about it, because I do care about it. And I hope people like it. My favorite email I got about that piece was someone emailed me just as certain as the day is long with the with the wisdom of Solomon. Nice list. But uh, I think you might want to check your facts a little bit. Cabaret beat Godfather for Best Picture. Let's try to be a little bit more careful about that. You think you would have researched that, which of course that is not the case at all. Godfather right. won Best Picture, but I, uh, those I find kind of amusing because I, I find that it kind of as a study, as, as a as a student of human nature, there's something funny about someone being so concrete, certain about something that they're so obviously factually, easily researchably wrong about. I, I find that kind of funny. But the idea of people disagreeing. Or, or thinking it's not well written. Like it, maybe it's not. I don't know. I, I, I'm just making this stuff and, I, and I'm putting it out in the world and I hope that people like it. But the idea, um, you know, I, I've changed my view on this a little bit in the last few years because uh, I think particularly as you see, uh, uh, traditionally marginalized groups, uh, the way that, that, uh, kind of you'll see readers kind of, uh, you'll see a certain kind of reader gang up on them or go after them or personally attack them. I've changed my view on this a little bit, but on the whole, particularly as a white dude, I feel like part of my job, I feel like part of the job of when you're writing or when you're in media 
is to get yelled at. <laughs> like, I, like we're kind of right. refs in that way. Like in the way that you go to a game, I don't go to a game, but a lot of fans go to a game and they're yelling at a ref over a call, not because they think it was a terrible call or maybe they do, but it's more that like they're getting out unaccept emotions that are unacceptable to them in their daily lives. You can't just go yell at the dude at the bank. You can't just go scream at the, at the person in the car next to you, but, uh, but they're getting out unpleasant emotions in a place where it is safe. I generally feel that's part of my job when I write something is people are like, you're a jerk, you're a Cardinal fan, you suck. Like, whatever. Maybe they think I do and whether I don't. But if it made them feel better to do it, that's awesome. So that's always kind of been my viewpoint on it. I've changed, I don't think that necessarily should go for everyone. I think it's very easy for me to say that. But certainly uh, from my standpoint, I've always felt like that's part of the job. Did you reply to the guy who was so certain that he was correct? I don't reply to everyone, but that one I could not help. But I was very nice about it. I said, sir, I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings, but only kind of. And said, the uh, the Godfather did uh, actually win that year. I did not hear back from him. See, a lot of times I've found in my career, I'm sure you've found this too. Someone writes you a really nasty email and you respond kindly. And they're like, hey, man, it's real cool of you to write back. You're a better man than I am. They tend to cave quick. I found very uh, when, when you arrive. Now, Twitter is different. Twitter, everything escalates, even if you're being really nice. Just there's something about the medium that just makes you want to just escalate it a little bit. It does not jive with my personality. And I don't mean that like it makes me into a bad person. It's just not how I see the world. It's just not how right. I absorb it. It doesn't mean it's too mean. It doesn't. Sometimes it's sometimes it's too fast. I, it's, it's always kind of amazing. Like I, right now we're recording this at night at uh, what, uh, 10, 10, 15, uh, Eastern time, 10 mm-hmm. Eastern time. If I went on Twitter right now, I, if I just scrolled up and wrote up Twitter right now, the number of people whose work I deeply respect and think about, and I imagine them sitting in like this genius cave coming up with all these great ideas that they have. Nope. They're just tweeting. That's what they're doing on 10, 15. Their kids are sleeping in the other room or, or they could be reading a, forget reading a book. They could be watching a dumb television program or doing whatever they are. People are, seem to be just tweeting all the time now. And I have to say, I don't have that need, I suppose, that, uh, that a lot of people have. And listen, they, they're right and I'm wrong because I think that's clearly the direction this is going, but, uh, it's just not really to my speed. Let me ask you this. You, um, you do this newsletter every week, which is just great. And you, uh, you wrote, uh, in the latest one, here's a numerical breakdown of all the things I wrote this week, uh, in order of what I believe to be their, their quality. You did a piece for MLB.com about, uh, who's affected the most by the Arenado extension. You wrote a review of Climax for Pace Magazine. You updated your best pictures winner for Vulture list. You wrote a piece for MLB.com who beat Bryce Harper's extension. You're on an NOS preview for MLB.com. You wrote a uh, debate club best horror sequels. And you did an interview with Eddie Van Halen for Golf Magazine, <laughs> which I do want to get to specifically. Yeah. But I just wrote a blog post about this the other day, and I don't think The Athletic was very happy with me. But I literally the other day, uh, two weeks ago now, I wrote a piece for The Athletic about a basketball player who plays for UC Irvine. It was about uh, 1,200 words. I didn't mean to ask about pay. Very rookie mistake because I'd been writing with them. <laughs> And I asked the editor at the end, I was like, oh, I'm going to, uh, you know, so how much did I put it in for? And he said, $250. And I thought, fuck, you are busting ass here. You are writing a million different things. Is this still a viable way to make a really good living? I mean, I, I can't speak for, I can't speak for everyone on this. Um, I, I do feel that, um, I'm in a fortunate situation in that I write for a lot of different places, but I have to say I have a home base. You know, I mean, I have like I have a certain number of things 
that I write for MLB.com and for New York Magazine. They are my base, and I write for them every week, no matter what, uh, regardless. And Sci-Fi Wire as well. I write that with my friend Tim Grierson. Like, I have these certain kind of base things to where I'm, and again, I'm very fortunate in that regard. I'm pitching stuff not to a editor, but my specific editor who I have been working with regularly for many years. And, um, and so I'm very lucky. Like, for me, my, my editor at New York Magazine, is David Wallace Wells, who, of course, has been a little busy lately because he's promoting his book, The Uninhabitable Earth, which is everywhere right now. And so uh, when you have an editor like that, uh, he, he and I have worked together for years and years and years, you know, that is, I'm able to get away with a lot of stuff that probably a lot of people aren't able to get away with, not because I have some sort of special genius. I just have a relationship, and I've had this relationship for a really long time. And my goal as a writer, I have to tell you, like, I talk about me being the ideal audience. Right behind that is literally my editor. <laughs> like, I feel like if I've written something that David Wallace Wells, who is a fantastic writer in his own right, says, yep, that's a good idea. And I like the way you've written this. I feel like if I can, if I can climb that hill, I'm doing okay. So I'm writing, but my job for my editors, my job is to make their lives easier. Editors have stressful jobs. And listen, I get it. I get frustrated too when you're working with someone and they don't get back to you as quickly as you'd like, or they're slow about this thing or whatever. Like we all have, there are always complaints one way. Uh, there are, there are complaints one way or the other. Uh, writers have about editors and editors have about writers, probably more editors about writers. But my job, uh, frankly, is for any place that I write is to not be a problem is to make it as easy as possible. And that's for two reasons. One, because Frankly, I just like I just I'm generally trying to make things easier uh, anyway, uh, mm -hmm. just because I, I'm moving on to something else. But secondly, I have found that the more better relationship I have with a specific editor, it's amazing what you can get away with. Like I wrote I wrote a uh, I wrote for Bloomberg. Uh, I covered the election for uh, the 2016 election for Bloomberg. And I was working with uh, John Homans, who was also an editor with me in New York Magazine. And he was my editor. And I've been working with him for a really long time to the point where, like, he knew I was going to turn everything in on time, if not early. It was going to be clean. It was going to be uh, he would know exactly what the idea was going in. You know exactly what and he was going to get exactly what I told him he was going to get. You do that often enough. It was it was amazed me what I was able to get away with. I covered I went to cover a Trump rally and the first 200 words were this kind of uh, was this anecdote about my late grandmother in in Mawequa, Illinois. <laughs> and, and and he was like and he loved it. And he let me get away with it. If I had not worked with him before and I was like, hey, so listen, I know you want me to cover this Trump rally. And I'm going to get there eventually. But first, I need to have two paragraphs of throat clearing about an elderly woman who died in, in 2004 that you never know and ha will never have any interest in at all. I, he trusted me to do that because I've worked with him for a long time and he doesn't have to worry about me. He knows, he knows I'm not going to try to sneak something past him. He knows I'm going to give him, uh, I'm going to give, give him something early enough to where if it is bad, he'll have plenty of time to fix it. That relationship to me in, I, with my editors is something that I really really value and like try to foster as well as I can. So because of that, I don't have to do a lot of blind pitching. I just mm -hmm. don't. And so I know that is the hardest part. I have done that before. It is very difficult. So I don't know if that is a viable way, but again, it, maybe it is. I honestly don't know. I just haven't had to do that in a long time. We'll see if all, if, uh, uh, among, uh I would say at this point, uh, almost half of the places that I write regularly for are currently for sale. <laughs> so, yeah. so you never know. Uh, yeah. but certainly, uh, uh, for now, I, I'm pretty lucky. To All right. We got to talk about this. You, um, your interview with Eddie Van Halen, 
you because you literally wrote in the comments remind me to tell you about this one someday and i feel like someday <laughs> is someday is now and uh it ran uh ran a golf.com uh february 23rd 2000 i originally appeared in, in golf magazine you know your lead to it was eddie van halen will forever be cooler than you but if it makes you feel any better he gets just as infuriated by golf as the rest of us if he handled his guitar the way he handles a golf club the world of rock would be an infinitely poorer place but this is still his game and as a member of los angeles lakeside golf club We'll be playing golf as long as he's playing Panama. The game still drives him nuts. Rock gods are just like us. And you do this Q&A, and it's very short. The answers are not long, and I, I kind of feel like I've, I've been in your shoes. And then you're kind of about to ask the fight. It ends with you're about to ask him another question. He goes, I got to go. There's a coyote in my backyard. Big fucker. And that's the end of it. <laughs> All right, what happened? You basically described the interview. It wasn't really more complicated than that. I don't, as far as I know... You know, there could be coyotes. Like he, I, I don't know where even quite understand where he lives. There are certain places in Southern California where coyotes are a fairly regular thing. And maybe like he has like, maybe he has a litter of kittens in his backyard that he's just taking care of. I like to think that Eddie Van Halen has a litter of, of, of kittens in his backyard he that he's constantly tending to. Um, but no, for golf, because it's funny, I don't, uh, I'm a, I'm a regular, I have a monthly column for, for golf magazine now. No, I don't like golf. I actually actively dislike golf. I think it, I take the George Carlin stand that it is mostly a waste of land. <laughs> and so, um, but, uh, but, but my old editor at Sports on Earth, the late, the late lamented Sports on Earth is now a consultant and he's consulting Golf Magazine and Golf Magazine has done, he gotten the Time Magazine treatment. And I think the one, and the New York Magazine treatment until it went for sale, they found a wealthy person who wanted the prestige of owning a magazine. And doesn't really care about whether it makes a huge amount of money every month, which is basically journalism's golden place, right? <laughs> That's yeah, the, Ark yeah. of the, the Ark of the Covenant at this point. So, um, so they brought me in to say if I wanted to write a monthly column for them. And so I said, I said, well, I don't like golf. And if I write about golf, I'm just going to tell all of your readers that I think their sport is a waste of land. So I don't know if I'm the right fit, but, but then we thought about it for a little bit. I like, how about we, so I, what we did was we, I'm teamed up with a, with a top, they have a top 100 golfers issue that they do every year, which I'm sure this is a magazine staple, right? Like I think the, the, the biggest, uh, selling New York magazine for years and years, years was their 100 best doctors in New York. <laughs> issue. Right. Like no matter right. what else they did, that was all they cared about. So they, they sent me up with one of those guys, uh, with our instructor in Atlanta, cause I'm, I'm in Athens, Georgia. And, uh, so he tries to, he, I'm basically a wayward boob where he tries to teach me golf and I try to, uh, uh, both resist him and not understand it. But part of that too was we were going to do a weekly back page thing where we interviewed celebrities about their golf games. Uh, I found very, I think because I have my Sports Illustrated show, they assume, which has celebrity guests, they assumed I had all of these celebrity contacts. I do not have celebrity right. contacts. They have a booker that does that. So after we got out of Van I was like, I think you may actually, uh, I may not be the best person for this. So now I think someone else got Don Cheadle for the last issue. So, so now I'm just back sticking at that call. But Eddie Van Halen, it was a fun, you know, he is, uh, uh, I always find people like that interesting. People that are obsessed with golf, uh, in a way that don't, they don't care that, like, I remember learning that Samuel L. Jackson was really into golf. <laughs> and Samuel L. Jackson to me is just like one of the cool, has been ever since I first discovered him, uh, years and years ago. And I, I think probably and do the right thing, right? Uh, it was like the coolest to be just the coolest actor in the world. And the fact of him playing golf just struck me as off brand. <laughs> but, uh, I always kind of enjoy that, uh, that, that cool people, uh, still, uh, still love to play golf. I guess, I guess it's just the uh, cool people eventually become rich people <laughs> and rich people like to play golf. When you were interviewing him, like, uh, the, you know, the questions you said, beer or golf? And he said, well, eventually both, golf first. How long have you been playing? 
I never really took lessons. I just kind of have a natural swing. But 30 years, 35, ever have a niece? No. The answers are pretty pretty short. And I can't tell if he's being short with you or it was just a quick kind of rapid fiery type of thing. I think he was probably more him being more short. (laughs) He's not generally comfortable with the press. And listen, I, I don't blame him or anyone else. That is, I will confess, I don't understand why anyone talks to us at all. <laughs> and yeah. Don't get me wrong. I, I, under, I think that there is a lot of value in what we do. I don't, I don't mean to say that. I just, you know, I mean, it, it's really all downside, right? Like, like this is, uh, I think the world now, particularly now, right, where everybody, uh, because of social media, everyone is kind of a little bit of a politician, Right. Like everyone has mm-hmm. to be a little careful about what they say in every single s- scenario. And they're, they're always kind of brand managing of, uh, of what, even if the brand is, is, is no one. It's just an accountant with like 30 followers that loves the Cubs. Uh, everyone is always kind of aware of that. So in a world, in that kind of world, the idea of like putting something that you have to say, an expression that you have to put out in the world, letting that be interpreted by someone else rather than just saying your, it yourself. Uh, I understand why people are wary. Uh, and I certainly understand why someone like Eddie Van Halen is wary because he is, I mean, there's, there's no, Eddie Van Halen's place in history is secure, except the way the world works now is no one's place in history is secure. There's nothing like if Eddie, if Eddie Van Halen says something that ruins his career or hurts his career, there is no returning from that now. Right. Like Eddie Van Halen will not come back. If some horrible story comes about Eddie Van Halen, he cannot just go write this incredible song and was like, oh, we're cool with Eddie Van Halen again. Like, if he says something terrible, there's no, like, you can erase decades of 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 work and, and people liking you in a half a second. So, and everybody can do that all the time. Uh, I, I, I I spoke to it, I go, every year I go back to the University of Illinois where I went to school, and I talk to students and, and one of the things I, I always mention is like, you realize that right now while I'm talking to you, I could pick up this phone and with this, with seven or eight characters, ruin my life. <laughs> like yeah. just, just ruin it like it was nothing. Like it, like I could just, I could just do something, and it would be over. And it, no matter what I did the rest of my life, that thing would follow me around. Now that is not to say a lot of times when people do things like that, they, they do not deserve it. I'm not saying that like it's constantly this sort of witch hunt, but it's in that in that scenario when it's hard enough to not say things yourself that you control that could ruin your life and career. I certainly understand why anyone that's established themselves would be very wary of talking to the press. You know what's interesting about that? So um, I was just, this just popped in my head. You you wrote a book that I actually really love called God Save the Fan about a decade mm-hmm. ago. And you, um, in the book, you, you I believe you had lunch or went to a bar with John Rocker. Am I correct yeah. in that? Yeah, and, yeah, our old pal, yes. Right, and obviously I wrote the Rocker story for SI. And, I've had this discussion with people before. So that story came out in 1999, pre-Twitter, pre-social media. It blew up really big. You know, he was demoted. He was fined. He was embarrassed. He was ridiculed by Will Ferrell. If that happens nowadays, I don't know. Like, part of me thinks it's actually easier on him because there's so much noise nowadays and everything lasts really quickly. I don't know if that makes the dent that it did back then. I don't know. Uh, I think I think it makes the dent. I just think the dent people move on to another dent really quickly. <laughs> yeah. Is probably the best way to put it. I think that uh, that story um was uh I think it had the resonance that it did because A, I think that uh, you did a great job with it and and B that uh 
that Sports Illustrated had a cultural significance then than perhaps it uh, would yeah. now. Uh, and uh, that's nothing against Sports Illustrated. I work for Sports Illustrated all the time. But right. it's just that like there were fewer places to get it where John Rocker could speak. And now there are tons of places where John Rocker and millions of other people like John Rocker are able to speak. I, I, it's funny. I think about when I did that, because you know, that, that interview that I did with him uh, was originally for Deadspin. It was the one part of God Save the Fan that was originally posted on Deadspin. And I put, I, I actually put like uh, footnotes in it. And, uh, and in fact, when I did the readings, I, we would always, we'd always perform. Uh, I was always John Rocker <laughs> and I'd take two people from the audience. One person would be me and one person would be his girlfriend. And uh, it was always fun. It was a fun kind of interactive way to do readings back then. Um, but it's funny because there's so many quotes in that, that now you go back and read it now. And that's where I got around a little bit when I did that interview with him. But, you know, I mean, that's, but, but, you know, it's, it's just a different time. People would read it and be like, huh, that's amazing. And then they would go on to something else. Right. And right. now, now you would, now I think what would happen would be, it'd be a more immediate reaction because your piece with him was a massive reaction. It was going to be a massive reaction no matter what, because it was so shocking. It was just right. so out of control. And also he was at peak power. It is worth noting that. John Rocker at his peak was an incredible pitcher. Like I just yep. remember how odd, he was so good. And after that, his, he was still good after that, but it was never the same after that, which is of course his own fault. But, uh, when I did my interview with him on Deadspin, they got around like, wow, that's so crazy. Like I, I think in the piece, he literally calls you a liberal Jew from New York. Yeah. So, he did. Uh, he did. so, and like that feels like something that now people would be like, Oh my God, John, let's cancel John Rocker. Like we would all hate John Rocker and we like yeah. rip apart John Rocker for like a day. And then we would move on to something else. And so I think that he both benefited and like it worked out well for him and horrible for him and actually well for him in a way that would differ. Now I think the reaction as strong as it was for him would actually be more, it'd be higher in intensity now. Like it would be like, it was kind of a wave when that happened, right? Like, like yeah, you wrote the story and then there were newspaper things about the story and then there were reactions to the story and then ESPN would do something about the story, but it was all just, it was cascading and it would like grow a little bit. Now it would be this massive explosion where everyone spent all morning destroying that shithead John Rocker. And then by one o'clock, it would be someone else's turn. And right. so I feel like, like, and by, by Thursday, if that happened on a Monday, he would be able to leverage that into something else. In fact, one of the things I thought was funny is when I did that interview with him and, uh, for Deadspin that ran in the book, uh, it was, uh, in large part because he was actually trying to audition for a Fox show. He actually was trying to become like a television personality. He had like a moment wow. there for a while. And frankly, he was probably just about a decade early on that. I yeah. have to say, uh, yeah. John Rocker rebranded as, uh, I mean, he used to wear a shirt, a white, when I interviewed him, he was wearing a white t-shirt with black lettering that literally said only the words speak English. That was yeah. all that was on his shirt. That is at the time I was like, boy, what a dipshit. <laughs> like, right. who did I, and now it's like, oh, that's probably a smart branding opportunity. Then I'm sure well, there was an Instagram story of our interview while we were doing it. Like yeah. it's, it's, it's just a, it's a different world uh, across the board. But, uh, the idea that, uh, I think you're right. I think the idea that the things that he said now, um, would, uh, I think there'd be not an, I, I, I don't know if there'd be more of an audience for them. Uh, no, I think there would be, I think it's more that there would be, uh, people that would see him getting yelled at and feel like, 
and feel like that somehow was oppressing him. And then they would support and they'd say, well, you can't even go to college campuses and say these things anymore. And then it would turn in that direction. And so it would be, I'm just glad, I'm just glad it didn't happen that way. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then Trump then, would tweet in his be, defense. Yeah. Of course, of course. Yeah. Cried out loud. Yeah. No question. And, and, uh, and, but you know, I also wonder if, um, if it, again, if it would have happened 10 years later, I wonder if it would have been like, let's say, look at, look at, uh, what the, there was a sport that Ben Ryder did a story about, uh, uh, Trevor Bauer, right? Uh, when he didn't say anything nearly as bad as what Rocker did, but certainly, uh, Bauer was willing to push the envelope on certain things. He's been a, certainly a shithead on social media, uh, in a lot of ways. And you know what? It's probably helped him. I'll be yeah. honest. It's probably yeah. more people know about Trevor Bauer now than new and they've not, but it's not actually cost him anything. So, well, it's, it's just a different kind of world. And, uh, I'm waiting. There's got to be a 30 for 30 on rocker coming, right? I always think like, that it would be a yeah. good one. Yeah. yeah there's got, one. there's got to be one coming. Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman and I'm here with grandma Sandy, who seems really down lately. Sandy, what's wrong? I just can't believe the Alliance died. All that money I spent on San Diego fleet season tickets down the drain. Seriously, did you really care? I mean, the football wasn't great, but it's not every day you date, fall in love, and marry a man named Dantes Ford. You're married to Dantes Ford? I was, but once the league died, it all came crashing down. My pookie bear moved back to McKee's Rock, leaving me with a cheap wedding band, seven empty bottles of blue Gatorade, and an unfulfilled football dream. Lord, I wish there was something that could cheer me up. Well, wait, there is. 503 Sports is a sponsor of this podcast, and they make the best throwback merchandise around. USFL, XFL, Portland State, all sorts of hats, t-shirts, jerseys. If you just go to 503-sports.com, you'll find something, I promise. I really would love a number 12 San Diego Fleet jersey. But that's Dante's Ford. Oh, Jeff, young love is eternal. 2005, you were the founder of Deadspin. And mm-hmm. I remember when Deadspin came along and how, it, I mean, freaking love Deadspin. Um, and I always think of Deadspin with two other entities in, in the sort of sports world, which is, and this is going to sound weird, I'm sure you never put these all together and you may disagree. I was sort of there because my roommate was one of the editors when Slam Magazine came along. And Slam Magazine mm-hmm. was really the merging of hip-hop and basketball into this magazine. And it was huge and trash talk and blah, blah. And the writers showing up at games wearing throwback jerseys and kind of being buddy-buddy. And then I was thinking of, uh, of Bill Simmons when he started up the sports guy and how it just kind of worked. And it was this new thing and it felt fresh. And and I feel like Deadspin was, is right there. Like, I always think Slam Magazine, the sports guy, Deadspin has ideas. That stuck. Um, I wrote for, you know, I was writing for a while for The Athletic. You wrote for Sports on Earth, which lasted for five and a half years. There are always new things coming, new things vanishing in the sports landscape. Um, why did Deadspin last? And why do some things last? Have you figured out why Deadspin last? Why did Sports on Earth not last? What does it take to last? What does it take to vanish? Well, I, one advantage that Deadspin had over Sports on Earth and frankly had over Grantland is that it wasn't for a, for a very long time owned by a billion dollar company that really just kind of saw it as a line item on the sheet that could cross, that could be crossed off at any point. Um, and I think that that's, 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 that's what happened to Sports on Earth, not when MLB let it go, but when Gannett, uh, split and that, uh, kind of halfway through. Um, and I think that's what happened with Grantland, right? Like, 
this is why I always, I know that people are scared about the industry and we'll get into Deadspin. So I'm just going to have a quick aside. I know people get scared about the industry and, you know, getting into journalism and so on, but like, journalists are just like everybody else in America. You uh, work really hard and it doesn't really matter because you're at the total whim of some rich asshole who doesn't even know that you, what you do exists. And yep. so uh, the idea that uh, Grantland or Sports on Earth or any of these other places that are AOL fan house back in the day uh, that have uh, fall, uh, that, that are not around anymore. The reason they're not around anymore is not because of anything that anyone who worked for them did wrong. It's just a bunch of rich people who, who for a brief moment thought it would benefit them financially to have it. And then they changed their mind. It has nothing to do with the work with really what they're doing. So I would argue one of the main reasons I, there's, a, I think there's an editorial and sensibility reason that dead spins lasted. But frankly, one of the primary reasons that Deadspin was able to last is it was owned by Nick Denton, who was not just trying to make every single buck off it every single minute that he could. He allowed it to grow. He allowed it to kind of go its own, its own kind of weird way and go over here and was not constantly like pushing, pushing margin, uh, numbers at us and make it, at least not when I was there. I think that a little bit would happen later. But, uh, for, for me, you know, Deadspin was in, as much as an independent site as anything in sports could be. And so I think that's, uh, I agree with you that things do just kind of come and go. Uh, but I think one of the big advantages that Deadspin had was not like my brilliant voice. It was that it was actually not, the expectations were not, it wasn't at the whim of some hedge fund dude that just decided, oh, it's more profitable for me to just cross this thing off, even though, because I don't even know what the hell it is. It's just some, right. something in an Excel spreadsheet. So that was one advantage. For me, I feel like Deadspin's continued relevance. Uh, I, I can't take any credit for it at all. I'm, uh, I'm really good friends with, uh, Mark Lasanti, who used to write for Grantland. And, uh, he started Defamer, which was an old site that started before Deadspin. It was about Hollywood. It was a fantastic site. And uh, it was and I, in large part, I was I kind of modeled Deadspin after what he was doing, at least at first, uh, before it kind of evolved into its own thing. But when he left Defamer, everyone was like, oh, my God, how will Defamer survive without Mark Lasanti? Uh, uh, he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. Uh, let's see what happens next. And Defamer kind of got eaten up by TMZ and all like the gossip stuff. And Defamer kind of went away. And now most people don't even know what Defamer is. And not nearly enough people know how brilliant Mark Lasanti is because of that, of that site. For me, I continue to get professional capital out of being the guy that started Deadspin, even though I left Deadspin like more than almost 11 years ago. But the right. reason I get the capital out of it, if, if, if the people that took over for me, uh, AJ Delario, uh, Tommy Craggs, now Megan Greenwell, uh, if they had not made it bigger and not made it larger, I, I they'd be like, uh, Deadspin would have went away or become some part of some sort of uh, line item in another in another hedge funds budget, and I would be known as like a oh right I remember Deadspin. Are you the guy that did that? As opposed to Deadspin is now huge and thriving and bigger than it's ever been, and therefore I get some sort of frankly unearned cachet because the people that are running it now are doing such a good job with it. Now I know that some people don't like the direction that Deadspin has 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 gone these days. Uh, I do not agree, but I think one of the fun things about Deadspin is it's going to piss people off and it's going to make, sometimes it's going to make you happy and sometimes it's going to make you angry. And that is part of the fun of it. Right. I, the Washington post uh, just did a story about dead spin. Yeah, uh, Vince Strauss is the writer. Uh, I was at, interviewed for the piece briefly. And uh, there's a brief moment where uh, 
uh, Laura Wagner, who I do not know personally, um, but is one of the, uh, is, I think she's clearly kind of the shit stirrer there, there now. And it kind of like, like there's a moment they actually quote Portnoy as if like, I'm surprised. I don't mean, I don't want to get into the, I don't want to get in the, uh, into the barstool stuff, but, uh, mm-hmm. uh, he kind of quotes, quote, they quote, uh, Portnoy, uh, uh, with a Laura Wagner in, insult. And there's a lot of people, I work in sports and there's a lot of people that are like, wow, Laura Wagner, she's just, she's so rough. She's just constantly stirring the shit. She's totally after us all the time. As if, and then they'll go to me and be like, I mean, can you believe what Deadspin has become? And I was like, no, literally Laura Wagner is exactly what Deadspin has always been. It is always like, there have been times, like, are there times where she's, it feels like she's a little unfair? Yeah, maybe, but that doesn't mean she's actually being that way. It means that it affected you in some sort of way and has upset you. Uh, and, and maybe it's fair and maybe it isn't, but the point is, is you're supposed to stir, uh, stir shit up. And, you know, to me, one of the things, this, the one through line of Deadspin, there's a lot of things that are different. There's a ton of things that are better. There's a scope to Deadspin now that I would have never imagined and just am blown away by to this day. I, I read it every day and I am so admiring of the work that they do. But the one through line that's been there from the beginning is to call out bullshit. Now, sometimes they're going to get stuff wrong. I got stuff wrong. There's probably times I was unfair to someone when I should have been more fair. I'm sure that happens today. But the whole idea, like to have someone whose job it is to call out bullshit on everybody, even if they overextend sometimes, I, I'm so glad that exists. And if, if Deadspin would have went away, I would have wanted somewhere else to have it. So I think that those are really the things that have kind of helped Deadspin thrive throughout the years. Uh, but there, I don't, I really feel like, you know, uh, I don't, it doesn't feel like my DNA is there much anymore, which I think is a credit to the site, to be honest. I think that it's better because of it. I, I write one piece a year for Dits, but I fill it for Drew McGarry's, uh, um, Jamboree column over the holidays every year. And I write a big, huge, obnoxious, uh, navel gazing thing. And, uh, and the first response is almost always, wait, who is this guy? Why, why is he, why is oh, he funny. Drew? And I think that's great. I think that is awesome. That is exactly what Deadspin should not be tied to this sort of past. It should, it should constantly reinventing, reinventing itself and doing crazy shit and, and, and pushing the envelope. I love that Deadspin still does that. And I hope I, they are speaking like everything else in the media. They're up for sale right now. And, uh, I certainly hope wherever they go is someone that understands, uh, kind of what makes them great. You seem like a pretty upbeat guy. Does the uh, does the whole fake news thing bother you, or are you able to sort of shrug it off? I mean, I would say that uh, it's the fake news thing is a symptom of a larger disingenuousness uh, that I have not made peace with, but uh, consider an unfortunate. Well, I hope will someday be considered an unfortunate relic of this particular moment in human history is <laughs> probably the best way to put it. Um, uh, listen, people have hated the media forever. People have always hated the media. I mean, it's weird. I mean, the idea that, that when Trump came around, all of a sudden people turned on the media, it, I think it's been weaponized. I think it's gotten uglier. I think it's gotten more dangerous, but the idea that, uh, that now people are saying like, you know, I mean, fake news is really just a Trumpified version of you can't believe what you're reading the paper. Right. Like it's the right. same thing. And, uh, uh, it's the same thing that's kind of been there forever. It's just, it's just, it's, it's not only is it meaner and more dangerous now, but it's used by people for their own, uh, to, to, to basically disguise the bullshit stuff that they're doing. And right. they're able, like, it, it's one thing to say you can't believe what you read in the paper. Basically what these people are saying are now is like that thing 
is wrong and they've made it up because it makes me look bad. And now they have the voice to say that. In the past, when a big thing would come out in the paper, a big story would come out with someone, you would maybe put out a press release or you'd maybe try to get a quote in a more, in a more friendly publication. But on the whole, there was really not a lot you could do. Now you can go to war with a piece if you want to. And you've got a whole army of people waiting to back you up. So yeah, it bothers me, but it doesn't bother me because, oh, well, all of a sudden people aren't, don't trust the work I'm doing. I assume people have always been skeptical of the media, no matter kind of what they're doing. So, uh, I, I it's, it bothers me, but it doesn't, it's, I, I'm, it, it bothers me more that it's being used by people who are really shitty people as a way to hide the shitty things that they're doing. Yeah, well said. I like how all the news is fake except Hannity. You can trust him. He's okay. <laughs> you know, I met that dude one time. I used to go on, uh, back in the day, back when you could go on, uh, you remember Red Eye, that show that was on Fox News, hosted by Greg Gutfeld. It was on at like two o'clock in the morning. And, uh, and Gutfeld now is like, Gutfeld's kind of got weaponized himself. But back in the early days, I was actually still running Deadspin at the time. And Gutfeld had actually written for the Black Table, my old site. And we all knew each other socially. And it was all a joke. Like you went on, it was like, they would tape at like seven o'clock at night and air at two o'clock in the morning. It was just like, it was like this weird Wayne's World public access sort of strange thing they put on Fox News at two o'clock. And like I was on there and like Gawker writers were on there. My first, and, and like all these, like all these interesting Silly people. Then it was, you, I, I, I would occasionally, I would always kind of be the, well, I think you right wingers are being silly about this, but it was all in fun, which have now, of course, it's not, nothing is fun about it at all, but there was something kind of silly about it that, that I always thought was making fun of it until it benefited everyone that was on that show to, to start pretending they were serious about it, which is yeah. the problem with all of this is everyone now, everyone is, like, I look at a guy like Greg. I like Greg Gutfeld. He, I've, I've been friendly with him for more than a decade. I think he's actually a very smart and very, a very, a very, uh, he's a smart guy. I also think that he has part of that intelligence is recognizing that, oh, I shouldn't make fun of this stuff anymore. I'll just be really like now I can benefit from this. And so I used to do that show and I remember seeing Hannity after one of the shows. And I have to say, I never watched Hannity then. I haven't watched him now, but I certainly know more about him. The, I've never met a dude that was more. The, it, 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 the political beliefs had nothing to do with his personality. His personality was like, Hey, do you know I was just on television? I'm going to be on television tomorrow. And uh, did you, it's like, I know that you're having, I, I, you're someone I have not met, but just so you know, hi, I was just on television and I'm on television. Have I told you that I'm on television and people watch me? Like the right. idea of any sort of political bent or any sort of ideology, ideology that drove him at all. He was, he was void of ideology or empathy or understanding of anyone other than, did you know that I was just on television? And listen, you work in television long enough, you see people like this, right? There are people I respect that I like a lot, but if you go on TV too much, you start thinking, wow, people look at me when I'm on, uh, when I'm on camera, people think I'm important. I guess I am. And I think that that becomes a big thing for people on television. I think I was, I've always kind of considered him like the embodiment of it. It's really interesting. I, uh, I once had that talk with Bob Lee at ESPN and he, you know, he calls it red light fever. He said it just changes yeah, people. Yeah. My, my mom used to be a probation officer in Putnam County, New York, and she had a lot of access to Janine Pirro. And she said Janine Pirro was a very moderate, you know, conservative, but moderate conservative, thoughtful, smart <laughs> judge. I used to appear with Brian Kilmeade on stuff. I always thought that guy was a pretty decent, level-headed guy. <laughs> There's something that just infects you with TV. 
And listen, I would, uh, I, I don't think it's entirely disconnected from the sensation of wanting to get a bunch of likes and get a bunch of retweets yeah. and get a bunch of followers and having a, a bunch of people want to, uh, to, to, to watch the traffic numbers come in. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't think it's necessarily disconnected of that. Uh, uh, and, and for me, you know, that's, I think, I, I think there is something validating and initially invalidating and then becomes addictive, uh, in the idea of, like, I'm sorry, I know this is probably going to be a dumb thing to say for someone who gets paid by, by hopefully by people reading his stuff. But I just don't like, I've always, I, I've always thought Twitter, I keep going back to Twitter. I always feel like Twitter would be a better place if there were no follower counts and no numbers on anything. Because this yeah. is, it, Twitter on its own is an incredible communications device. It really blows my mind that I can type something and I can type something, hit send, and someone in Antarctica can see it in a half a second. It's unreal how, like, it blows my mind that they, it's a great communication device in that. But once you put numbers on it and turn it into a competition, it turned it into, into a popularity contest. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it turned it into, um, and, and, and not just a popularity contest, contest with other people, but a popularity contest with yourself. The yeah. idea like, oh, this thing that I said only did this. I better start saying more stuff like this. And, and it turned what could have been an awesome communication device into people just saying things that they might not even necessarily believe or care about that much because they think more people will react to them that way. I don't yeah. think that's necessarily different than what people are doing on television. I think you, you're right. Uh, I've worked with Kill Me before. I like Gutfeld more than Kill, Kill Me, but I do think there is something inherent in that idea of you start it with like, oh, this will be fun. This will be, the, the, I, I have a TV show. I can't believe this. And then you start looking at the numbers. You're like, okay, well, we, I know I really liked this thing, but it didn't get the rings I wanted. So maybe I should start doing this thing. And next thing you know, you're, you're, you're Pravda. <laughs> yeah. like, that, 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 and, and I feel like that's, uh, that, uh, that is partly human nature. Like I, that doesn't forgive. Uh, them because I think that they are uh, I part one of the things that gets me through the day <laughs> these days is uh, going under the perhaps faulty assumption that someday there will be a reckoning for all of these people for this particular time and the, yeah. their contribution to it. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be the case, but I need to feel that way. So uh, that's not to forgive them into any stretch of the imagination. But I do think it is human nature to uh, get validation and then re- and then uh, want more of it. Right? That there's uh, there's the great George Carlin line. Um, when they asked him, they asked him, what do you, uh, uh, what does doing cocaine feel like? And he said, uh, it makes you feel like doing more cocaine. <laughs> and, uh, I think that's kind <laughs> of what this stuff is, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, and like you, you, uh, you never, there's never, the high's never enough. And it's why even back to the Deadspin days, I never looked at, I still don't look at traffic numbers. I never looked at traffic numbers then. I don't look at them now. I always just tell my editors if I'm not getting enough, just, I mean, just, give me a warning <laughs> and, then, and then just fire me. I, I can't like, I, I, I can't be the, the, the gerbil hitting, hitting the button to get a pellet. Uh, I, I cause I, there's no number that will satisfy me. There, every number is both too low and too high. Uh, and you know, this with Amazon numbers on, uh, on, sure. on, on book things. Like you just can't, like I learned that with my first book, like you just can't do it. One person can buy one book and make the number go crazy and then have it go back to something else. It doesn't, there's no number that feels good for me. Every number is not enough or, or, or too many. So I just don't look. And, uh, and I feel like that's the only one, not the only way, but one of the best ways to stay safe. I just want to say that's a freaking great, great point. And we, we talk about that a lot in this house. Like it's like, um, you know, I've had a couple of my books options, but nothing's ever become of it. And it's like, imagine if one day one of your books becomes a movie 
whoa, that'll be amazing. And then you're like, but what would really be amazing? Like, okay, so the book becomes a movie. And then, but it's only on HBO. It's not in the theaters. And then you want it in the theaters. But then it's in the theaters, but the movie kind of sucks. And then, like, we we are never satisfied with anything. Yeah, I think this is why, uh, on a related point, why we're so obsessed with nostalgia. Nostalgia gives us the illusion that the past was awesome. And, uh, and, and we also have the illusion that the future is going to be great because the present is inherently unsatisfying. <laughs> like no matter what's going on. It's so good. Present. Yeah. <laughs> and like no matter what, the, whatever you're doing now is never what you dream. Even like for crying out loud, it, uh, not to bring up Trump into this, but for God's sake, I mean, isn't, isn't Trump a walking advertisement for this? Like everything yeah. is just more, 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 more. And you can, I mean, the guy shits on a golden throne and it's not even, and he'll still f- always feel inadequate and stupid and, uh, and has to bl- blash out, uh, accordingly, uh, and, and, and pretend like he knows everything. And, you know, that there's something sad about that. Uh, now at this point, I, my, my, my sympathy, sympathy for him is gone, but I, there, there is something about that idea that we, uh, we need, it's never enough. Like there's something inherently, no matter what you get, I've just never, like, it's funny. I was watching, uh, I was watching a Willie Nelson concert the other day and I actually had the thought like, well, is Willie Nelson the only person that's got this all figured out? <laughs> like right. Willie Nelson, he's just like, you know what? I just sit around and play songs. I sit around and I play songs and I smoke weed and then I do it again tomorrow and I will, and I'm, and I will do this until I die. And that seems unsatisfying. No, no. I mean, that, I guess I would find that unsatisfying if I were doing it. The problem, the issue is not necessarily that he's playing music and getting stoned is like the best way to live a life, but it's the best way for him to live his life. And I guess that's the goal for anyone. And so, but this is the wrong field for that, right? Like how many people, how many people have we seen in the last, in the age of social media where had the, this, impeccable career absolutely in, in, in sports journalism the yeah. absolute impeccable top of their field thing that every single sports journalist dreams of having and do they seem happy to you <laughs> they yeah. and then there'll, there'll be some sort of, and they'll, 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 they're always getting in fights with somebody else and they're always hating what these kids are doing today and back in my day it was like this and there, there's something inherently kind of unsatisfying about life and so therefore you, we pretend the past was better and the future is going to be better. But now, uh, it used to be like this. It should be, it should be like this. But the fact is, is we can get everything that we want and, in, and it's not going to make us happy. It might make us happier. It might make our lives easier. But the idea that there's a, like, there's a threshold that we pass and we're cool. Uh, I have to say, I, if that exists, I, I haven't found it yet. You know, it's funny. I, uh, I consider no good. There's no greater example to me of that. This sort of idea of unhappiness reaching the pinnacle than Skip Bayless having 2.87 million followers on Twitter, but following nobody. Like literally <laughs> does not follow one human being. Like you can't follow one. There's not some, some sick kid in uh, Des Moines who wouldn't, wouldn't love a follow. I, I just think there are these people in the media who just seem hugely successful and usually unsatisfied at the same time. I don't know. I, I have to say, I, I, uh, that, that almost seems sane to me. He just, he just, just throws thing out into the world. Who knows what people are saying in response to it, right? Like, that's, like, I feel like that's, that's part of the fun, right? Like, I feel like there's something about, there's something almost pure about that. Like, Skip Bayless does not see Twitter as some sort of platform for communication. He sees it as a place to just throw, it's just a bucket to throw more shit into. And so good for him, man. Like, good for him. Like, like, I have to say, I, 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 uh, I, I will say, uh, Skip Bayless is obviously not my cup of tea, 
There is a, uh, I, there was a, the, the thing that I used to always mock him for, uh, which was, is that V doesn't believe any of this shit. Uh, and I still think that's true, but I think that's actually now like coalesced into actually convincing himself. He believes all of these things. It comes to the TV <laughs> idea, right? Like, right. like he's like, he's like, sure. Like, you know, after a while, after a while, yeah, I'm right. Who cares? Look what they're giving me. Like, look at all the stuff they give me for just shooting this stuff out here. Eventually, you have to start to believe your own bullshit a little bit. So, uh, right. I, I, I always feel like a guy who, uh, has got to be frustrated with, with the way all this has gone down is a guy like Jay Mariotti, right? Like, oh, that's a guy, yeah. that's a guy who, who probably could have been Bayless and, uh, and was briefly Bayless, but, uh, couldn't have his own way. What did and, he do uh, wrong? I don't even remember anymore. For people who don't know, Jay Mariotti was a, he was a huge columnist, Chicago yeah. Sun Times, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was and actually, uh, when I was in college, he was at the Sun Times when Bayless was at the Trib. If you can he believe that. Jay Mariotti was as big a columnist as you could have in America. Well, you know, one of the top five or six big sports names in America. And then, what exactly happened? I don't even remember. Well, a lot of things happened. I have to say, as a columnist, when I read him in college, I'm, I'm going to eat my, I'm going to regret saying this. I found him a very compelling columnist. I didn't right. find him the world's most wonderful writer, but he, he had strong opinions and had a, and had a, uh, a impressively direct way of expressing them in a way that feels like the job of a local sports columnist, right? That was kind of his job. He was good at the job. Guess what happened, Jeff? He went on television. <laughs> he went on television and got obsessed with television, but was not able, but, but also was like, I'll put it this way. Here's something, here's a, here's something in favor of Skip Bayless. When's the last time you heard Skip Bayless say, why are people on, on me all the time? Why are people all yeah, over me right. all the time? There's nothing self pitying about Skip Bayless. He's got that shit eating grin on his face because he got away with it. And he, and then you don't see him going, why are people after me all the time? I think Stephen A. Smith, I have to say, what are my thoughts about Stephen A. Smith? That feels like something he's also figured out as the years have gone gone along. There was a time where Stephen A. Smith was very sensitive to criticism. He seems to have had the level of success that he no longer feels that way, and which I think has probably made him a happier person. Right. Mariani's problem was always that he wanted all the stuff that came with television, but also did not want any of the criticism that came with that, and wanted none of the exposure that came with that, and and uh, eventually. I don't know. Uh, uh, eventually, uh, I think that that kind of braying, bullying stuff, the his kind of off air personality, uh, did not wear well and did not fit the moment very well. And I think there was also there was a there was a there, I think there was some sort of domestic issue that oh, yeah. uh, that had some, that had some some headlines that probably did not help either. Uh, but uh, it, it's funny to think that I look at a guy like. There's an old, there's an old, uh, there's an old line from the player, uh, the great Robert Allman movie where, uh, Tim Robbins is the producer and he tracks down Vincent D'Onofrio and, um, and he's, cause he's, he's getting these, getting these threatening letters and he thinks he's the one sending them and he goes after Vincent D'Onofrio and he's like, I'll ruin you. I'll ruin you. He's like, what are you going to do if you ruin me? If we both get ruined, I can still write. What can you do? <laughs> and I feel like there is something to that idea of, of, I don't know, like what, like if you, if Jay Mariotti is unable to bray on television and is unable to have the captive audience of a local, te- of a local newspaper, okay, now what are you going to do? Yeah. And, uh, and, and I feel like this is, Jeff, this is your advantage, man. This is like, no matter what happens, you're always going to be able to report out shit in a way that I, I'll be honest with you, I can't. I'm not, I'm just not the reporter that you are. 
So, uh, like that's a, like no matter what happens, you're going to be able to do that. What else happens in the world, whatever, whatever ebb and flow that every industry has, whether, whether you're popular at this point or you're not popular at this point, that's something that you're always going to be able to make and do. Sometimes it will sell, sometimes it won't sell, but it's something, it's like something that, uh, that you can always do. I think guys like Mary, there was nothing there that wasn't there anymore. So once that thing was gone, there was really nowhere for them to go, but kind of spiraling downward. Man, right now, Jay Mariotti is psyched that we're talking about him. He's like, <laughs> yeah, I know, right, right. Well, it's funny to think because when I was doing Deadspin, he was still a huge personality. He was on Around the Horn, and, yeah. and you know, he was, he was, and and to me, that speaks to a lot of the wisdom of a lot of people that I used to make fun of a lot. Like, look at a guy like Plasky, like Bill Plasky. I used to make fun of him a lot, just like you make fun of Mariotti, Plasky, Woody Page, guys like that. They're survivors and they're smart, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. they're smart, and they're like, you know what? I know they knew how to ride stuff like that out better than a guy like Mariotti did. And uh, that's why they're there. And he's not. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you one last thing. You, um, we discussed your newsletter and you wrote, this just spoke to me a million times over. You talked about, uh, you spent nine years working on a book, <laughs> which obviously isn't, you're not going day after day writing the book, but it's right, a nine right. year process. And last week you were in New York city and you delivered, you printed the thing out. <laughs> and delivered it to you, carried it through New York City. I'm sure in a box. You delivered it to your agent. I actually had that experience, you know, years ago. I bring it to you know David Hershey, and I brought the thing in, and blah blah. And here it is. Um, why'd you print it out? <laughs> and and why'd you hand deliver it? I'm really fascinated by that. Well, yeah, I was unnecessarily dramatic about all of this. Uh, I don't want to get into too many details about the book because, as far as I know, it's I mean, it may never get published. I have no idea. Uh, right. but, uh, I wrote, my last book was, are we winning, which came out in 2010. And since then I've gotten married and had two kids and moved from New York to Georgia and, and I have the sports illustrator. I do all these things that I do. And my life's just so dramatically different than then. I just, and I always imagined myself writing, like, I think over six years, I wrote four books. I imagined that maybe not that pace, but constantly doing yeah. it. And then I hadn't written one for a long time. And I had an idea for a book that had nothing to do with sports fiction had nothing to do with sports and nothing to do with movies and nothing to do with politics and nothing to do with any of the things that I generally am known for writing about. Uh, but I decided I just wanted to do it. I just wanted to write it. And I, and I, I didn't, I didn't, most of the books I've written, all the books I've written have, I have been pitched beforehand. Then the deal has been done before I have finished them or even I knew exactly what I was going to be writing because it was contract. I was contracted to do so. And I decided I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to write a story and I thought I would sell it. And then I would, give it to my agent and say, if you can sell it, great. If not, I'm glad I got this out of my system. I didn't even tell my agent that the book existed or I had even thought about it until two weeks ago. <laughs> he wow. literally had no idea that, uh, that I was doing it or what, what was going on at all until two weeks ago when I was, and it didn't take me nine years to write the book. It took me about a year to write the book. It just took me eight years to get used to having a family and children. Um, and uh, so now, so uh, I, so for me, that was part of the process. Once I realized, you know what, I, if I'm going to surprise him with this, I'm going to physically surprise him <laughs> right. with this. So I did bring it, but there is something, it was cool and I felt good about doing it. But then I left the restaurant where we were and uh, we walked back to, to, uh, to his apartment and I walked him over there and I realized, oh, so now all I've done is make him carry this around all day <laughs> as, as opposed to me carrying it around all day. So I did email him a copy the next morning just to, just so you, if you need to get this around, you, you can't have it. It's not like a 90s movie. 
where it's like my one copy and I left it in the cab and when I have to track down the cab driver to go right. find it or or I get stuck on like a windy street and it swept them all the way and there goes my life. So I think it, that happens in Wonder Boys. Uh, I, I had other backup copies, but uh, I, I did kind of, it was, it was really more for me than it was for anyone else. But I have to tell you, I am kind of glad I did it. Yeah, that's awesome. I, uh, I actually miss those days. I always felt, I always felt there was a sense of handing something off that very, it was a very satisfying moment, handing over the yeah. manuscript. That doesn't really exist anymore. So you made it happen. Uh, <laughs> Artificially, but yes. Yeah, it still counts. <laughs> uh, well, listen, man, seriously, I am, uh, I'm not just saying, I'm a, it was a joy sort of going back and reading through your stuff and, and you're just a really beautiful writer. I mean, you really are a beautiful writer and it's, uh, it's, it, you know, I've enjoyed your career for years and years. So thank you so much for doing this. I really do appreciate well, it. Please. Uh, uh, thank you for the kind words and, and, and ride back. I, I mean that when I said it earlier, like you are, I wish I had your reporting, not only, not only, uh, skill, though I wish I had that too. I just, you're just, uh, you're the best kind of reporter because you just, you're diligent in a way that, like, uh, honestly, if someone doesn't call me back after like two calls, I usually stop. And you don't, you're, you're really, it's something I, I really, really admire. And I, I, maybe I'm too, uh, socially awkward to, uh, to, to totally, completely follow through. But you're, you're a pure reporter, man. And I've always respected that. So, uh, uh so thanks for letting a, Occasional reporter, mostly bloviator, uh, guest on your podcast. I want to thank today's guest, Will Leach, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Will on Twitter at William F. Leach and subscribe to his newsletter by going to tinyletter.com backslash William F. Leach. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. And reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.